I have had uh, conversations with people over the years, and one of the things that gets brought up a lot, or used to at least, is uh, why do we even bother to study the Old Testament? You know, we've had uh, times where uh, in a Bible class, and we've been doing that here uh, at Pippin for a while, and I'm really happy to see that. Uh, but you'd have a class, and it, it deals with the Old Testament, and sooner or later, somebody will ask why. Why are we even doing that? You know, we're not under Old Testament law anymore. Why do we bother to study it? Well, you know, it's not going to do any good for us. And I, I told a fellow one time, I said, well, we study the Old Testament because the New Testament tells us to. I said, really? I said, yes, it does. You know, uh, over in Romans 15, 15 4, the Apostle Paul said, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Uh, so these things uh, are useful for us. Now, it's true we don't uh, try to justify uh, our practices in worship and, and other things by the Old Testament. Those things uh, were nailed to the cross of Christ, and they are uh, no longer uh, in effect. But uh, the principles involved there have not changed. Uh, the principles are the same. And one of the things, one in particular that I wanted to look at this morning, is the examples. Now, in the New Testament, you do have some examples there uh, that you can use to, uh, to good effect, uh, but not like in the Old Testament. You know, in the New Testament, when, when, when uh, somebody is being talked about, it, it usually doesn't last all that long. Uh, you go into the Old Testament, and they'll spend a lot of time uh, a lot of time talking about David or King Saul or any number of other people. You, you get to see them in a lot more detail, you know, whether it's the good points or the bad ones. Uh, and all of that can be really, really uh, valuable for us. Uh, Brother Cale read uh, just a moment ago, you know, these things that we read in the Old Testament, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, now all these things happen to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come they were written as examples for us in other words if you are capable of looking at somebody else's actions whether good actions or bad actions and if you are able to see how those things played out uh, it gives you a pretty good hint that you know if you do the same thing the same thing's likely to happen to you if they did this and it, it turned out badly, maybe you don't want to do it either. Uh, so you look at these examples, and, and it gives you some instruction in how you ought to be uh, and how things may turn out, uh, you know, if you're unable to learn the lesson. And that is one of the bad things. You know, people, people have a hard time learning from somebody else's example. Uh, one of the things that I heard somebody talking about one time, he was talking about uh, criminal behavior, uh, and uh, the mindset that a lot of criminals have. And he said, you know, they, they don't learn from the example very well. Uh, said if something else or if something bad happens to somebody else, they say, well, they weren't as smart as I am. They're not as lucky as I am. You know, they're not as good as I am. So if I do the same thing, that won't happen to me. And if they do, and it does happen to them, then it's, well, you know, something else happened. It wasn't my fault. Somebody else did something, or, or this just turned out badly. If I do it again, it won't happen this time, and then it does. 
you know what they tell you about somebody who, who repeats the same actions over and over and over again, always expecting a different result? Well, that seems to be the case with a lot of people like that. But it's something we really seriously need to, uh, to look at and learn from. Uh, you know, and that's what the Apostle Paul is doing there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, he tells them these things were written so we can learn a lesson from it. And he says in verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, if you think it won't happen to you because you're better than they were, or smarter than they were, or luckier than they were, he said you might want to give that another thought because it probably is not going to happen. You're going to end up in the same place that they were. And he told them, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. It happens to everybody. Now, one of the examples that I think is a, uh, a really good one is uh, over in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 25, uh, Moses has been leading the, uh, the Israelites out of uh, Egypt. Uh, they have managed to uh, elude uh, Pharaoh's army uh, when God drowned them in the Red Sea. And, uh, you know, things are going relatively well uh, for them at the time. But in Exodus chapter 32, things don't go so well. Uh, Moses has gone to uh, uh, get the, uh, the law from God, and he's gone for a while. And the people are saying, well, you know, we don't know where this guy went. You know, we want to have uh, another leader. Uh, we want to have someone make us gods that will go before us. In other words, they wanted idols made. And uh, Aaron does it. Uh, Aaron, the, uh, the brother of Moses, uh, listens to the people. And he does exactly what they ask him to do. And uh, when, when God tells Moses, you know, you, you need to come down off of the mountain uh, and take a look at this, he's like, what, is, is, there, is there a battle going on? I hear this noise, is it a battle? And he said, no, it's not the noise of, uh, of the shout of victory nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear, Exodus 32 uh, and verse 18. But the people have decided that they need someone or something that's visible uh, to go before them. And Aaron did that. Aaron did exactly what they asked him to do. And when Moses is pointing out his mistake, in verse 22, Aaron says, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. In other words, wow, this, it, just, it just happened. It wasn't really my fault. Of course, you read a little earlier, it says that he, he fashioned it with an uh, engraving tool. He knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, he couldn't shift the blame like that, but I, I just threw the gold in the fire, and this calf came out. But he listened to the people. He said, they, they, they told me to do this, and I did it. You know how they are. And it's, it's one of those things. People have a hard time not listening to people. Uh, you, you think about King Saul over in 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's one of my uh, favorite places when it comes to 
uh, looking at an example because King Saul was a really good example, an example of, of someone who would not admit that he was wrong. Uh, if someone kept forcing him to see it, eventually it would be, well, uh, yeah, I'm wrong, but it wasn't my fault. And in his particular case, he said, I feared the people and obey, obeyed their voice. I did what the people told me to do. And then he says, yeah, I was wrong, but it was for a really good reason. You know, the people wanted to keep the best of the animals so we could sacrifice them to the Lord your God. So, you know, anything he could do to get out of admitting blame, he would do. But when it comes to listening to the voice of the people, <coughs> that is one <coughs> that is really, really hard not to do. Uh, most of us are, are swayed at least to an extent when it seems like the majority is against us. Uh, we don't like to walk, you know, on our own. We, we feel like we stand out too much uh, and we're uncomfortable doing it. It's kind of like uh, uh, I've told people before, I, I know it's that time of the year, but I don't like to go to the fair. I have never liked to go to the fair. And if you do, fine. I'm, I'm not saying that you shouldn't. It's just that I don't like it. And I don't like it because it's hot and it's crowded and it's noisy and I'd a whole lot rather be at home. But uh, one of the things that, that, that used to bother me the most is if you were down on the midway and you were walking this direction, it seemed like everybody else in the place was walking that way. But if you turned around real quick and started going that way, they had done the same thing. Every one of them had turned around and was walking the opposite direction. Exactly the time you did that. It didn't matter which way you went. Everybody was going the other way. And it's really uncomfortable to think that everybody's going in the opposite direction that you are. And if, if you start saying things and the majority of people don't agree with it, especially when they become rather vocal in their disagreement, you know, it, it, it's hard to do. It is really hard to do. Uh, but it's something that we absolutely have to do. Uh, because like it or not, <coughs> Christians have always been the minority. God has always had a remnant. You know, Elijah was, was thinking that he was the only one left, and God told him, no, I've got 7,000 people that haven't bowed the knee to Baal or kissed his lips. There were still people there. But sometimes it does begin to feel like, well, I'm the only one. Everybody else is doing something else. Everybody else is going a different direction. You know, this is really uncomfortable. But we've got to do it. Because even if there was only one person left in the world that was doing the will of God, you're still the majority. You know, we have God on our side, nothing else counts. But it's hard, <clears throat> but we have to do it. Sometimes you need to be careful how you do it. Uh, you know, you don't want to be unnecessarily confrontational, but still, you know, speak the truth. Speak the truth in love, but always speak the truth. But uh, <clears throat> Aaron and uh, uh, King Saul both you know, well, if, if the majority of the people say this, I guess that's the direction I need to go. Generally speaking, if the majority of people are saying something, you need to stop and take a good hard look at it to see if that was something right or not. Uh, another one that uh, I, I tend to harp on occasionally is in Leviticus chapter 10. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 10, the first couple of verses, it says, then Nadab and Abihu the sons of Aaron each took his censer, put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. 
So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. Nadab and Abihu were priests. They were sons of Aaron, and it was their job to burn incense before God. Now, they, they did almost everything they were supposed to do. They, they had their censors, and that's, uh, if you've ever seen some of these movies or uh, TV shows or something where it's uh, talking about the, the uh, Catholic Church, they've got these little metal uh, balls on the end of a chain, they swing back and forth, and, and smoke's coming out of it, and that's essentially uh, what Nadab and Abihu were doing. But they put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord. Now, profane does not mean what we normally think of when we think of something that's, that, you know, somebody's using profanity, it's bad words. Well, when he says it was profane fire, he means it was plain old ordinary fire. It wasn't special. It was supposed to be special fire. It's supposed to come uh, from, the, uh, from the altar. That's where it was supposed to come from, and it didn't. Now, we know that it was not simply a mistake on their part because there in verse 3, what was the reason that God gave to Moses for, for his actions? By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. In other words, the actions of Nadab and Abihu were not showing God as being holy. In other words, they decided to do something, and he says it, you know, they, they uh, offered fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. He did not tell them to use that fire. And if God didn't tell you to do it, then you can't. And they decided that they were going to go ahead and get fire somewhere else. And it didn't matter where else it came from. It did not come from the source that God had specified. And they knew what they were doing. And so they were saying, you know, well, God has commanded this. We can do what we want. And besides, it's a little thing. It's a little detail. It doesn't matter. Most of the religious groups in the, in the world these days have exactly that attitude. We are going to worship God. We believe that there's one God. We believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we're supposed to accept Jesus as our personal Savior. And from there on out, we're going to do what we want to do. We're going to use the kind of music that we want to use. We're going to teach what we want to teach. We're going to do what we want to do in almost everything. And all Nadab and Abihu had to do was get their fire from the wrong place. We have an obligation to try to do to the best of our ability exactly what God told us to do. And I, I, I've mentioned this before, but the, uh, the principle of authority is really strong here. And, and this is a good place to show people how authority works. God did not tell them to use that fire. They say, well, he didn't tell them not to. Well, he didn't, tell them a lot. he didn't tell them not to do a lot of stuff. But God doesn't go through and just say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. He says, this is what you do. That means nothing else. This is what you do. That means nothing else. And people fuss about that. They don't seem to, to, to catch that. They don't understand the concept. And I tell them, of course you understand the concept. You live your entire life by that concept. What are you talking about? If you take your car to a garage, you need to get the oil changed. You drop it off, you've got some errands to run, 
So you ride with somebody else and you go off to do your errands. And then when you come back to get your car, they've changed the oil. And they flushed out your coolant system. And they've tuned it up. And they put some new tires on it. And you say, what are you doing? I didn't tell you to do all of that. You didn't tell us we couldn't. You know, now, if, if somebody did that to one of us, we'd say, you know, are you crazy? You're only supposed to do what I told you to do. We understand that. But then they'll go and say, well, we can do whatever God uh, hasn't told us not to do. We understand the concept, and we use it in our entire life, except in religion. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, things have changed. But Nadab and Abihu were of the opinion that they could do whatever they want as far as the details were concerned. Details didn't matter. We can do what we want. And uh, another one is, is Esau. In, in Genesis chapter 25, uh, we read about uh, Esau. He was, he was a hunter. He liked to go and hunt. <clears throat> and his father liked the things that he brought back. So he favored him. Now, Esau was the firstborn, but uh, so he was supposed to be the one who got the birthright. And when they talk about the birthright, they're talking about the position that the firstborn son had. You know, and, and under the patriarchy, the firstborn son was the one who took over uh, as head of the family. You know, he was going to take his father's place when he died. Uh, and he got a, a double portion of the inheritance. It was a very important thing. And so when Esau's out and he's hunting and he hasn't got anything and he comes home, well, there's his brother with a pot of stew. He said, I'm about to die of starvation. You know, give me some of that. And well, I'll do it if you'll sell me your birthright. And so he did. It says he despised his birthright. Now, the, the point there is that there was something really, really important. And he was acting like it didn't matter at all. Didn't matter a bit. He despised his birthright. You know, over in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, the Hebrew writer talks about that. And he talks about that as an example. And he says in verse 16, he said, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now, again, profane means somebody that's, you know, not viewing things as special. They're not important. They're not holy. And the, the birthright was important. And he acted like it wasn't. And that's the way some people are toward the church. Well, it's not that big a deal. You know, I'm, I'm there occasionally. You know, I try to make it for Sunday morning worship. You know, as often as I can, you know, when I don't have a headache when I get up or it's not raining or I have something else to do. Told, told you the uh, other day about that one lady. Uh, her and her husband were very religious people. Uh, I don't remember exactly which group it was that they belonged to, but I do know that she was telling us one time uh, about being in the store, and she happened to see the preacher coming. And she's, oh, no, I wasn't there yesterday. So she didn't give him a chance to say a word. She just got in and said, I know I should have been at church yesterday, but I had to mow my yard. And that's the way a lot of people are. You know, I, I will be there if I don't have something else more important to do. The church is not viewed as something that's special. It's not viewed as something that's important. And it is. 
You know, the, the, the church universal is a blood-bought institution. It cost the life of God's son. That's how it was built. That's, that's how important it is. So when you have somebody who acts like it's not important, they're just like Esau, a profane person who's not viewing these things as being important, and they should. David is an excellent example of even bad people can do stupid things. You know, that, that's one of the things, I don't know about you, but it just irritates me no end. Uh, when I do something that I just, I know it's stupid. Uh, I, was, I was telling you this morning in, in the class that I have a, a habit of talking to people when I drive, and it's not the people in the car. It's the other drivers. And uh, Marcia's always saying they can't hear you. And it's probably a good thing. But what I hate more than anything else in the world is when I fuss about somebody who's doing something wrong, and then five minutes later, I do the very same thing. And then it's, oh, man, I can't fuss at them now because I did it. Everybody makes mistakes. Sometimes we make really bad mistakes. Little mistakes, that's one thing. You know, you try to correct them as best you can, or at least sweep them under the rug. Big mistakes are another thing. And the problem is, is that the bigger the mistake, the less likely somebody is to admit to it. And there are some things, uh, for example, and I'm not gonna uh, mention anybody specifically, but uh, you know, it's not been that too long ago when we had a lot of congregations that were saying, we are not going to meet. Due to the uh, current health situation, we're not going to meet personally in the building. Uh, and we won't until we decide that this is over. And then after that, there are several, several people who have said, uh, we made a mistake. We made a mistake. That was not a good thing to do, and it has caused problems, and these are problems that it's going to take a long time for us to work out. But we didn't do anything wrong. If you made a mistake, you did something wrong. And the, the problem is, is when that and, and almost anything else that, that you want to mention, the problem is, is the longer you go without acknowledging the mistake, the harder it is to correct it. Now, one of the big differences between King Saul and King David was when King Saul was confronted uh, that he had done something wrong, he tried everything in the world he could to weasel out of it. It wasn't my fault. When David was confronted with his wrong, I mean, even when you're talking about adultery and murder, when he was confronted with it, I've sinned. He didn't try to weasel out of it. The longer you try to weasel out of it, the harder it's going to be to correct. So when it comes to your attention, you just need to grab the bull by the horns and say, I made a mistake. I committed sin. And if it's against somebody in particular, you need to ask them for forgiveness, and you most certainly need to go to God and ask him for his. Mistakes oftentimes grow the longer it takes you to uh, correct the problem. And uh, another thing, uh, you know, if, if you want to see the, the best possible example of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, don't be deceived, evil company, corrupts good habits. If you want to see an example of that, you don't have to look any farther than Solomon. Solomon was one of those people, uh, he started out really well. Uh, 
when he became king, God asked him what he wanted. And he said, I want wisdom. I want a heart of understanding. Why? So people think, well, he's really smart. No, so I can lead this people. You know, Solomon was saying that I don't know how to go in. I don't know how to go out. I'm like a little child. I'm not equipped for this. You know, you, we, there's this whole nation that has to be taken care of, and I don't feel that I am competent to do that. And so God gave him the wisdom that he had asked for. In uh, uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, in verse 11, it said, God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. You ask for, for a wise heart so you could lead these people. So I'm going to give you that, plus I'm going to give you all those other things you didn't ask for. So he started out really, really well. But by the time you get over into uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, things are not going so well anymore. Verse 1, but King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. God said, don't do it. This is what's gonna happen. Solomon did it. That's what happened. They turned away his heart. You know, you look at that and you think, you know, you ought to be smart enough just to do what God tells you to do. Because if you don't, it will not turn out well. Now, you've got good examples, too. Uh, there are a lot of bad examples, even uh, some of them with good people. But there are good examples, too. And one of the, one of the great things about the Bible is the Bible shows people the way they were. Uh, and I think that's one of the, the um, uh, real evidences of the fact that men did not write the Bible. I mean, they were, they were the ones who, who did the writing, but the ultimate author is God. God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired these people to write what he wanted written. And what did they write? They wrote about people, and they wrote about their good points and their bad ones. You know, most people won't do that. If you have somebody who is a hero to you or say to the nation as a whole, you don't want to, you know, kind of smudge their character by talking about bad things that they did. You just talk about the good things. The Bible talks about the good things and the bad things. It presents the people the way they really were. Now, over in Hebrews chapter 11, you get a, a real condensed uh, version of this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, by faith Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen. God told him this is going to happen and it had never been seen before. Nothing like that had ever happened. But what did he do? Well, you know, no, that can't possibly happen. You know, I've never seen that. Can you show me some evidence of the fact that that's actually gonna happen? Never heard of such a thing. 
but him being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And you can imagine that all the time that he and his family were building that great big huge boat, that people were going by saying, that is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen in my life. Why are you spending all this time going to all this expense to build this great big boat and there's no water anywhere around here? What are you doing? He did it because God said to do it. Abraham is another one. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham had been given a promise by God that he was going to have a son, and from that son there was going to come a great nation. And he waited years for that to happen. And then it finally did. And then his son has begun to grow. Everything's going fine. And then God says, take your son, go to a place I'll show you, and offer him as a burnt sacrifice. Now, the majority of us, I think, would say, now, uh, wait a minute. What are you talking about? I've been waiting for him for years. And now you tell me to go and sacrifice him? That didn't make any sense. Well, evidently, Abraham thought about it, and he concluded, well, if that's what God is telling me to do, then obviously he must be going to raise him from the dead. He rationalized this whole thing in his own mind, but the most important thing is what God said do, he did, up to the point where he had the knife up and was ready to do it, and God said, don't do it. You've done what I told you to do. Now, it wasn't for God's information. It was for ours so that we could see what he did and, and be encouraged by the example. Moses. It's one of those things, I, I always have the worst time thinking about uh, Moses and all the things that he went through. He spent 40 years in the company of people who did nothing but complain. I, I, could, I couldn't make it for 40 minutes. He put up with this for 40 years. And not only that, when God said that he was going to destroy them, they get right to the borders of the promised land. They sent the spies in to, to spy out the land. They come back, 10 of them say, no, we can't do it. These people are giants. They got these big walled cities. We were like grasshoppers in their sight and in our own. Joshua and Caleb said, no, we can do this. If God is for us, there's nothing they can do about it. We can do it. And they said, okay, we're going to kill Moses and them, and we're going back to Egypt. And God said, nope, stop where you are. And he told Moses, he said, I'm going to kill these people, every one of them. And I'll take you and make a great nation from you. And Moses argued with him. Now that takes a lot right there. You're going to argue with God? But he argued with him. He said, if you do that, people have heard about all of this stuff. They know how we came out of Egypt. And if you kill them off now, they're going to say, well, their God just wasn't able to do anything with him after he got him out of Egypt. They're going to say, that it's a lack on your part, so don't do it. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone had just said they were going to kill me because I was doing the right thing, I don't know that I'd be too inclined to argue on their behalf. 
Moses did. He did the right thing regardless. Absolutely regardless. Do the right thing. You know, in uh, verse 13, the Hebrew writer is kind of uh, summing all of this up. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And we can join that group. One of the greatest things that you can do, one of the most beneficial things that you can do to help yourself when you're trying to lead the Christian life is look at the examples that we find in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, as we can learn a lot. If we'll just put aside our own thoughts on the matter and just see what happened there. It may be that there's someone here this morning that's not a child of God. If that be the case, you could come forward confessing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, and you could be baptized, have your sins washed away. If you're an erring child of God, you need to go to God in prayer. Confess the sin to him from a repentant heart and ask him to forgive you, and he's promised to do that. Or it may be that you just need the, the prayers of those that are gathered here for some other reason. Whatever your need is, would you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing? <laughs>